Our scripture reading this morning is Daniel chapter 1, which is located in our church Bibles on page 737. Please stand if you are able as we read from the New Te Old Testament. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and com competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the, liter the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding, about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. 
Please be seated. Welcome to Daniel. Thank you, Lynette. Before we uh, come to our study this morning, a few matters of prayer for you. Do be praying. Please continue to pray for Dan and Tina Paulson. Dan, as you may know, was in a serious car crash uh, before the end of the year. And God has, I think, miraculously healed him. Not totally. He's still in process. But do continue to be praying for Dan and Tina and for their family. And uh, give thanks for the many who have reached out to them. Do be in prayer, too, for Katie Jensen and her family, for her husband, Mark, as uh, they uh, continue to be treated for Katie's breast cancer. Uh, she um, is awaiting surgery soon, so do uh, pray for them and do what you can, please, to encourage dear Katie as she um, uh, continues to wait on the Lord. And uh, for my own family, just to let you know, uh, we will be out of town this week as we attend my father's funeral in London. So thank you for your prayers there too. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Father in heaven, this book which has so much to do with the interpretation of mysteries is a good reminder to us that every time we come to scripture, indeed every time we come to a turning point or to a, an hour in our lives, we need you to interpret what is a mystery to us, confusing to us, to those things that we too often don't even pay attention to when we need to be asking you, Lord, what should I do? Lord, what does this mean? Lord, how should I apply this? How should I follow you by faith in this situation? So, Lord, we ask that you would speak by your Holy Spirit to us this morning. Speak of Christ, speak of the gospel, speak of what you did sovereignly in the book of Daniel. In Christ's name, amen. So here's a small country with a hostile neighbor on its eastern edge. That neighbor has tens of thousands of troops amassing uh, apparently threatening imminent invasion if it doesn't receive certain guarantees and tributes. So the smaller country casting about for allies and yet utterly powerless in the face of its much more powerful neighbor appeals to an old friend from the West, a rival of the Eastern nation. Then at the right time, urges it to come forth in a show of strength against the first. So it is that smaller countries try to survive in the great game of nations and world dominance. It sounds a lot like the contemporary situation in Ukraine, doesn't it? But this is the 6th century BC. The smaller country here is Judah. Its menacing neighbor with tens of thousands of troops camped on its border is Babylon. And the Western ally called to oppose it is Egypt. If you look at this map, you will see there the purple is Babylon, the green is Egypt. And Judah at this point is so tiny, really just the precincts of Jerusalem, that it hardly bears even a color on the map. This is what Daniel tells us. This is the way he begins. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. Of course, there is a backstory to this. 
which is also in its way quite tragic. It's bound up with the real hero of Judah during these days, the man that people look to as a true son of David, Jehoiakim's father, Josiah, who rediscovered, you remember, the book of the law, but in his tragic overconfidence had gone out into the desert to battle and never came back. And after that, Tiny Judah was constantly switching alliances, trying to play off the superpowers against each other. But now the game is up here in 597 BC. Nebuchadnezzar turns up for his reckoning with Judah. It's unclear exactly what happened next. Some reports say that King Jehoiakim uh, had a heart attack when he saw the size of Nebuchadnezzar's army. Others say that his younger brother Jehoiakim became king but then immediately surrendered not only the family, but many of the nobilities and treasures of the city. Whatever the case, we know this, a large number of the city's noble families were immediately taken into exile. Why is that important? Why does this book begin here? Well, Daniel begins here because this is the last date stamp that Daniel has on his family's relationship with the kingdom of Judah. That, he is saying, that moment is where my story begins, it's where we went into exile. So that's the visible history, and if you are interested in it, let me recommend this book to you, as I think I've recommended this book before, The History of the Ancient World by Susan Weisbauer, who is a believer and lives in Williamsburg. But this is the message of the Bible, that behind all of that, behind all of the human machinations and geopolitics, in spite of appearances, the sovereign God is in control. He is at work and still is at work, even in what looks like total disaster and ultimate rejection. And the message of this book is he does not abandon his people to the world, no matter how things look, no matter what you may be experiencing, he has not abandoned you but indeed his sovereign plan is being seen through. And he will yet show himself through his people to be the salvation of many. So here is the book of Daniel. That's how it begins, not only against this vast backdrop of empires and conquerors, but also in the way that God moves, often quietly, but always sovereignly in what he gives to the world and to the church. So two observations as we begin the book of Daniel. Uh, God shows his sovereignty by giving the church to the world and God goes, shows his sovereignty by giving the world to the church. So first observation, giving the church to the world here in verses 2 through 7. We read in verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And surely we can see what this history must have meant for Daniel and his friends as they're recounting it, as he's beginning to tell the story. If the Lord had meant to give Jehoiakim and Jerusalem into Nebuchadnezzar's hands, then Daniel is surmising he also must have meant to give Daniel and his friends directly into the hands of the king of Babylon. But not for Babylon's use, but rather for the Lord's. At this point, right out of the gate, this book tells us not to take events we see at face value, but rather to recognize by faith that behind the scenes, God is always at work 
but Aslan is always on the move. We read here verses two through three. I find this so encouraging in the way it's written quite deliberately, not just as history, but as an informed faith view of history. And he, meaning Nebuchadnezzar, brought them, meaning the articles or the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem, to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. If you're familiar a little bit with ancient history, you know there's more than a little drama and posturing about it all. You didn't get to be a king in those days, and certainly not a great king like Nebuchadnezzar without a fair amount of ego. As an Iron Age strongman, when you wanted to show your dominance over another nation, you would humiliate their patron god by raiding his temple and taking his treasure in a kind of my god is bigger than your god smackdown. But the focus in Daniel 1, you'll notice, is not actually on what Nebuchadnezzar has taken. That's just the face value but rather on what God has deliberately given him. That's the key verb in this chapter because it points to God's sovereign working. And you can see also here, you can catch the deliberate historical irony in the way Daniel describes this. This archaic reference is a kind of a nod and a wink to his fellow Jews as they read this story because where did um, Nebuchadnezzar take what he had stolen? Well, he took it to Shinar, which was a deliberately archaic reference, not to Babylon, but to what Babylon had once been, the story of the Tower of Babel from Genesis. So this book is filled, isn't it, with Nebuchadnezzar's confusion, and it is God who will bring light. It is God who will bring rescue. So the king has taken, so he thinks, the holy things, the vessels of the vanquished God of Israel into his own house. But you'll notice here the parallelism, which is deliberate, again, because Nebuchadnezzar has taken the vessels of God. And who are those vessels? Well, they are some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, into his own house. So this has happened before. Unwittingly, you remember, as the Philistines did with the Ark of the Covenant in 1 Samuel 5, Nebuchadnezzar is pulling down deep heaven on his head, and he has no idea what's about to happen. We read here how much he took from these men. Their names, their language, their literature, their theology. There's even a hint here that they were obliged to give more than that, that they would have been obliged to become like Ashpanas, eunuchs in the king's court. We're not sure about that, but we have a strong suspicion. Again, the initiative doesn't belong, you'll notice, though, to Nebuchadnezzar. This is God's doing. He has given these men into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. He has brought these young men, probably still in their teens, into Nebuchadnezzar's court for training in his civil service. And two themes emerge as we read this book, even in these first verses. The first theme is the persistent reminder here, what Daniel keeps coming back to, not to the events, but to the motivation behind the sovereign God who brings them. What is his heart like? What is his motive? 
You know, some years before this, when there were prophecies about the forthcoming exile because Israel wasn't going to turn from its sin, we know that God had not sent his people to Babylon only to make them be punished and to repent, but to cause them in that place to be a present witness to his glory. How do we know that? Well, this is the prophecy of the exile in Ezekiel 36, 23. The nations will know that I am the Lord when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. It was to be an incarnate and present witness, even in the heart of Babylon, to the king of Babylon and to his court. And it should remind us that God doesn't change, that God in his nature is not wont to send angels to the world with his good news. Uncomfortable as it is, he sends his people. He sends you and me. I was reminded of this again. I've been reading Night by Elie Wiesel, which tells the story purportedly of his family's experience in Buchenwald and Auschwitz during the Holocaust. And he writes this, I no longer pleaded for anything. I was no longer able to lament. On the contrary, I felt very strong. I was the accuser, God the accused. And he begins to describe what had happened to his own belief in the Almighty. But then what's curious in the foreword is this. His best friend, Francois Mauriac, writes this. He said, and I who believe that God is love, what did I say to him? Did I speak to him of that other Jew, this crucified brother who perhaps resembled him and whose cross conquered the world? We do not know the worth of one single drop of blood, one single tear. All is grace. If the Almighty is the Almighty, the last word for each of us belongs to him. That is what I should have said to the Jewish child, but all I could do was to embrace him and weep. And to me, that's such a strong message about the way God works, even in positions of great suffering, a great tragedy where it seems that God has utterly forsaken a situation, perhaps a personal situation. It's that proximity that should interest us. So God sent Moriac to be with Wiesel. God sent Daniel and his friends to be with Nebuchadnezzar. Perhaps one of the most loathsome and violent characters in all of history, and yet God had a plan for him. They were his emissary to his enemy. He sent Daniel and his friends we notice not to destroy Babylon, but to make Babylon in some way his. To be his voice there, his hands, his feet, his witness, even to the people who have hated him. That's the first broad theme of Daniel. The second is that these young men, you'll notice, were the cream of the crop. Picked from the best, trained to be the best. I have a suspicion that Nebuchadnezzar in his way was something of a snob. He would only pick the best, the nobility of Judah. Yet what is so powerful really as you read this book, as you continue to read this, is to see how Daniel by contrast views himself. He really doesn't think he's all that. Rather it's his humility that stands out as you read this book. This is paraphrasing his prayer in chapter 9, which we will come to. God, he says, in a way, you are the hero. 
You are the innocent party in this story. It is we who have sinned against you. It is to us that shame belongs. We have rebelled against you. The treachery should be brought to our door. It really is quite striking. It's not a hundred miles from some of the discussions we have in our own age because it hadn't been Daniel and his friends who had committed the sins that sent Israel and Judah into exile. But in humility before the God of all grace, this is how Daniel sees himself before the judge of all the earth. He's willing to say, not their sins, not his sin, but mine. So I think, although I may get into trouble for this, best to put behind us all of those Sunday school songs about dare to be a Daniel, at least if by that we mean be like Daniel in his strength and in being the best. That's not it at all. Be like Daniel in his humility, his willingness to depend upon the grace and mercy of God. His strength wasn't his confidence in himself, but his confidence in God's mercy. And so what is our hope? What is our confidence? What have we reaffirmed this morning as Zach has led us? That our hope is in the King of Judah, who truly is the best. And without blemish, our confidence must be in him alone. Some of uh, friends of ours many years ago were called to uh, the mission field to be missionaries to Milan in Italy. And they were thinking, Italy, the fashion, the food, the Ferraris. And then as the plane was coming in low into the airport, they told us later, they flew over grimy industrial Milan and they started weeping because it wasn't the Italy they'd expected, the romantic missionary experience because, well, missionaries are human too. Yet God worked through them in their very weakness and brokenness in the years that they were there in what is actually one of the hardest countries on the planet to share the gospel in. And yet they saw fruit there, I'm convinced, because of the disappointment of that experience. So let's ask the question, why are you where you are? Could it be that God means you sovereignly to be precisely where you are somehow? That God has given you to be with the very people he has put you with, as difficult as they may be. No one should ask you to stay in an unsafe place, but the truth is we have become so adverse to adversity. What if God has called us to persevere in our present circumstances? not to rush off to where we might be stronger or happier, we think, but to stay where we are and not with resentment, but with gratitude and faith, clinging to him gratefully in our weakness. Wouldn't our very dependent weakness and our dependence upon Christ then broadcast the gospel? God shows his sovereignty by giving the church to the world. But secondly, briefly, God gives the world to the church here, verses 8 through 21. Chris Wright, in his commentary, describes the response of Daniel as, and his friends here as disturbingly flexible. Uh, four things asked of them as Jewish young men, verses 3 to 5. You'll notice their, their appearance, their education, perhaps their ability to father families and their diet, they gave in on three of them. 
But this, perhaps surprisingly, is where they draw the line. Their diet, verse 8. Look at verse 8. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. I'm thinking what an awkward conversation that must have been. I just saw the movie Spencer with Kristen Stewart, if you've seen it, which depicts, and she does a superb job of this, of portraying uh, Princess Diana. The movie uh, focuses on Diana's vulnerability, and in particular, her well-known relationship with food. And at the start of the movie, she arrives at Sandringham for the royal Christmas with the other royals, and the first thing she's told to do is to weigh herself on a weighing machine, because by tradition, the success of the royal Christmas will be measured by how much, the, how much weight the guests have put on by the time they've left. It's totally bizarre, but apparently true. And it's food, really, that becomes the metaphor for control throughout the whole story as people are watching Diana and particularly watching what she eats. I thought, what an interesting parallel. It reminded me of Daniel being weighed regularly while Christmasing with Nebuchadnezzar. After all, there is an element not just of improvement about all of this, but of control. Who's in charge? What are you going to be for me? And I think that's why Daniel and his friends have chosen to draw the line. It's probably not because they needed to keep kosher, nor because this food had been sacrificed to idols, because probably the vegetables would be too, but rather because, as someone has suggested, by insisting on this diet and not the king's food, they were deliberately declaring their dependence on God. He would be the obvious cause of their success. But like the story of Joseph in Genesis, it's not confrontation notice that God gives them to move their plan ahead, but rather simple friendship. As some of you know, because you were praying for me, I was out in California last week attending a dialogue between uh, conservative evangelicals, pastors, and people who are endeavoring to be biblical Christians in the LGBTQ community. And I might say more once I've had time to process my thoughts, but I wanted to make two probably quite obvious observations. Number one, meeting with people you disagree with won't necessarily change your mind. But second, it might change your heart towards those you have disagreed with. And I think that's something of what's happening here in the way that God uses relationships to bring about his sovereign will. The Church of Jesus isn't meant, after all, to stay walled up behind a cultural fortress, only ever riding out into battle when it comes to political threats, especially today. I'm reminded of what Jesus told the church in of Philadelphia in Revelation 3. Behold, he said, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. The door had been opened by Jesus and opened to the very people who despised the Christians there, but whom God wanted to reach. And Jesus didn't say to the church in Matthew 10, I'm keeping you in. Hold on, wait in here till I get back. No, he said, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. I find I have to change my thinking on this. The church is not besieged by the world. The world is presented, uncomfortably for them quite often, with the people of the church. 
true, we're not called to become friendly with the world system, but here in this world, it is God who I think sovereignly will give you friends. So for Daniel, notice this, it is plainly through his friendship, first with Ashpenaz and then with the steward, that God does his sovereign work. Verse 9, Daniel was given favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So Ashpenaz, you'll notice, the chief of the eunuchs, lets down his guard with Daniel, confesses his own fear. You'll have me lose my head, he says. And Daniel then proposes the experiment. I'll tell you what, he says, give us 10 days on our vegetables and water diet, and then you can compare us with the other guys head to head. And so Daniel reports the steward whom Ashpenaz had delegated the matter to listened to them in this and tested them for 10 days. And having just seen Spencer, the mind boggles as to how he tested this. One imagines calipers were brought out daily, measuring how they were indeed fatter in flesh than their colleagues. But surely what matters ultimately is that through God's provision, I think, of friendship, a way had been found. I remember when Barbara and I were first married, she got a job as a bookkeeper in an accounting firm just outside Boston. It was a big career transition for her and a big cultural transition uh, for them. They were Jewish. She was a good Catholic girl who had become a born-again Christian, but they liked each other. And after about a year into the job, she found she needed to draw one particular line. So my lion-hearted wife marched into one of the accountant's offices because her desk was right outside their open door, and she told him that she could no longer stand his uh, taking God's name in vain. Jesus, as a word, she said, may not mean very much to you, but it means everything to me. He was taken aback. The conversation wasn't easy. But in that confrontation, in that conversation, something changed. Not only did he agree to contribute to a swear jar, and his uh, profanity lessened a little, but more importantly, their relationship changed for the better, because that breach had been crossed. Had she not said something, nothing would have been gained. You see, God doesn't only give the church to the world. He's given the world to the church, I think, to have those kind of real conversations. Why has he made these people my neighbors? Why is God sending foreigners to our city from Afghanistan? Why has he put this irritating person next to me at work? As strange as it may seem, God seems to have deliberately, sovereignly planned that the world around you will come to know him through you. In closing then, let me encourage you to take courage in both hands and maybe take the risk this week of thanking God for someone you have been resenting, perhaps someone in your family, perhaps someone you work with, perhaps someone who is not easy seeing them maybe as someone he has given you for a reason. Don't try too hard. Perhaps God, Babylon wasn't built in a day, but pray, ask God for the courage to take the opportunity to talk to that person, perhaps about something difficult. Pray. I think it could be as simple as telling your hairdresser about your secret life at church. I don't know if you've ever tried this. No better captive audience than hairdressers. Say, <laughs> so, you know, while you're here cutting my hair, where are you with God? 
Or perhaps with that old friend that you've been meaning to come clean with, maybe from college or from high school, call them up. Tell them your story when you get together. Ask about them. Perhaps ask them, have they any interest in reading, say, the Gospel of John with you, if it turns out they don't know Jesus? As Zach told you last week, we're offering a class that begins in March about friendship and sharing the Gospel. But as you consider it, or as you consider your situation, I want to leave you with a very significant promise from 1 Samuel chapter 2. God says, those who honor me, I will honor. Take courage, reach out, say something. God gives the church to the world. God gives the world to the church. Let's pray. Lord, we want to recognize personally what we acknowledge theoretically, and that is that you have us in this life for a reason. You haven't raptured us. We live among the families we do. We work among the people we do because you want us to be there next to our neighbors. Lord, we pray that we would be witnesses for you and witnesses in humility and in honesty and in mercy to others. In Christ's name, amen.